This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 279 for Monday, November 5th, 2012, the Hubble Constant. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. Global warming is treating us really well here on the West Coast today. Uh, it's beautiful. I was wearing like shorts and t-shirt in the middle of November. Uh, we're recording this episode a little late, so it's you know, like almost December and still the weather is, is beautiful. So yeah, we, we have the exact same thing here. I, I was riding my horse outside in short sleeves yesterday and me and the horse were both sweaty and that doesn't normally happen outside. That's Yeah, it's we're destroying the environment in ways that allow t-shirts in, in yeah. November. Yeah. Thanks, global warming. Uh, so, as always, we are recording this episode of Astronomy Cast as a live Google Plus Hangout. And if you want to watch us record live, trust me, it's so much better um, than what you do is uh, you circle Astronomy Cast on Google Plus, and then you'll get a uh, event notification in your stream, uh, in your calendar of when we're going to record our next episode. And then you can just watch us live and uh, ask your questions, and we stick around and and interact with the fans and it's super fun. So it's a it's a really great way. If you really enjoy Astronomy Cast, this is a great way to kind of take it to the next level. So all right, let's rock. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.8thlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So when Edwin Hubble observed that distant galaxies are speeding away from us in all directions, he discovered the reality that we live in an expanding universe. Hubble worked to calculate exactly how fast this expansion is happening, creating the Hubble constant, which astronomers continue to refine and reference in their research today. So, so Pamela, I guess the first step is to go back. Now, we've, we've talked about Hubble and we've talked about the Big Bang, but I think it would be great to go back for a second and sort of talk about that discovery that Hubble made as part of his of part of his research. So what was he looking for? Well, so, so the, the interesting thing is, is I need to take you back a step, actually, because it, it wasn't just his discovery. It all started with a guy with an awesome name who's been forgotten largely by history, whose name is Vesta Slifer. He was working at Lowell Observatory in Arizona. And he was a spectrometrist. He he took images of galaxies that were not the type of pretty spiral or elliptical images that you see on astrophotography websites, but rather he took the light, put it through a thin slit and I believe a prism and spread that light out into a rainbow that he imaged 
called a spectrum, and we've talked about those in other episodes. And when he looked at these spectrums, he was able to use Doppler shifting to measure the velocity of the galaxies. And the expectation was that the galaxies would have a random distribution of motions, that some would be moving towards us, some would be moving away from us. And what he found was the majority of the nearby galaxies, while there's a couple moving towards us, like Andromeda, the majority are actually moving away. And this just completely blew his mind. And this was back in a time when we didn't actually know galaxies were galaxies. They were still called spiral nebula. And this was like all kinds of confusing. I've mentioned this, that I've got an old astronomy book that uh, that's like from the 1920s. And, and if you look through it, uh, it has the Andromeda Nebula yeah. and it has these, uh, these, these other nebula. And it's just so cool to see in fairly recent history that this was still their, their idea. Now, now, one thing you mentioned about the sort of Doppler shifting, the red shifting, blue shifting. Mm-hmm. So, so what exactly was going on there with the, with the light from these galaxies? So when when an object is is moving away from you, its light will get shifted uh, towards the red. If if it's sound, the the sound will get shifted to longer deeper wavelength noises. So it'll go from sounding like a trumpet to sounding like a tuba basically. We're used to experiencing this with fire trucks. We we hear them, the, the pitch gets more high-pitched as it's coming towards us. As it moves away, we hear this low-pitched noise. Well, light does the exact same thing, more or less. And, and so when we see galaxies moving away from us, uh, light from specific spectral lines that we know the exact color they should be, is it gets shifted. So if we were to use, like we use Gary Ganella's H-alpha filter every virtual star party on Sunday nights, and we see these beautiful nebulae. Well, these beautiful nebulae that show up so nicely through his H-alpha filter that only allows the light from that one transition from hydrogen to pass through. Well, if those nebulae were moving away from us at great velocities, their light would be a completely different color, and they, they'd disappear from, from the images. And so is that one of the the filters that astronomers use is to look at at this uh, at that wavelength or well so so what we actually do do with galaxies is we don't constrain ourselves to just one wavelength generally. First of all, galaxies are kind of faint. Doing that, you're not going to get very much light in. So right. so what we do, and we also don't know what velocity they're at. So if you don't know what velocity they're at, using a narrowband filter isn't useful. So we take all the light and spread all the light out, and we'll look at as much of the wavelength as, as our individual instrument allows. Some of the best instruments out there allow you to get all the way from infrared to low ultraviolet ultraviolet spread out in this continual spectrum where you can see dips created from magnesium. You can see dips created from the different hydrogen lines. We we see all sorts of different things as we look at these galaxies, calcium lines. And we use all these different lines to figure out the shift of, of the velo- created by the velocity of the galaxies. So Slifer, which is the best name ever, I think, yes. uh, had um, had sort of laid the groundwork for this next discovery by Hubble, right? Right. So, so the thing with what Vesta Slifer did was he, he couldn't actually measure the distances to the galaxy. So all he knew was a bunch, a statistically improbable number of the galaxies that he looked at were were shifted so that they're moving away from us. They were red shifted. Well, what Hubble was able to do was he 
took deep, deep images, ones that allowed him to see individual stars that allowed him to carefully resolve faint objects in many of these galaxies. And, and he took a time series of them so that he was able to identify individual stars called Cepheid variables that change in brightness over time. And as they change in brightness, they do it in a very systematic way so that one that changes over one period of time we know it gives off one amount of light. One that changes over a very different period of time, we know it gives a different amount of light. And so he was able to use the, this beating of the pulsating variable stars to say, I know how much light the star actually is giving off, more or less. And that, that was part of the confusion. But I know more or less how, how much light is actually given off. I can measure how much light I see and this allows me to calculate the distance the same way when we see a motorcycle headlight. We know roughly how bright that should be, and we can gauge the distance to the motorcycle based on how bright the headlight appears. And so, and so what did he discover? He was able to find these stars, these standard candles, right, in all right. of these galaxies around him. He's able to accurately measure the distance, which accurately is great. Is a accurately is He was I able to to, to a, a with order large of magnitude. Error bars. Yeah. <laughs> he was able to measure ish the uh, distance to these galaxies. Yeah. And and what did he discover? Well, what what he found and and the the problem with his accuracy, he he could tell the relative distances, but he couldn't tell the actual distances. So he was able to say this system's further away than this system. And when he made those measurements, he realized those systems that are further away are moving significantly faster than the ones that are nearby. And that is consistent with looking at an expanding universe. If you imagine yourself in, in a theater and all the chairs in the theater are moving apart from one another a centimeter per movie. Well, at, at the end of, of one movie, the chair next to you is, is one center, centimeter away. The chair next to it is two additional centimeters away. And, and each movie, well, that one that's two chairs away, two movies later, it's going to be four centimeters away. Three movies later, it, this just keeps increasing. And so you see that more distant chair appears to be moving faster. Well, it's not that it's moving faster. It's that the spaces between the chairs is increasing at a constant rate that makes things that are further away appear to be moving faster. Right, right. Okay. And and so, he, you know, he, he makes this amazing discovery you know, to, to calculate this, these distances and this velocity and sort of stumbles upon one of the most important discoveries in all of science. And, and there had been people who predicted this might be the case. Einstein's theory of, of general relativity and special relativity, when he chewed through all the numbers, when he examined our universe in detail, one of the things that came out of relativity is um, the idea that when you do the calculus of space-time, there can be a constant involved that makes our universe study state. But at the same time, if, if, if that constant doesn't have the exact right value, our universe is either expanding apart or collapsing in on itself. It's, it's not 
a static place. So Einstein originally tried to use his cosmological constant to stay the universe. But there were folks like the Matrier who, who said, no, 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 our universe is, it could be expanding and put these ideas forward. And so the theories were there that when Hubble together the pieces of Vesta Slifer's spectra and his own photometry of the variable stars, when all those pieces came together, there was a complete picture in one very special moment in history. And so, you know, they had, he came to this, I mean, did he actually come to this conclusion and say, okay, so we live in an expanding universe, therefore the universe had to have come from a single point in the the ancient past? That wasn't in that original paper. Now, right. now, I clearly was not alive when this was happening, so so I can't say what people were arguing at the conferences. Um, I can't say what letters were getting floated back and forth. But but in the literature, that original plot of distance versus velocity lays out the case for an expanding universe. Now, the two theories that emerged over time was the notion of a Big Bang, but also what's called the steady state model of the universe. This is a model that we now know isn't true, that observational data doesn't support it, but it took a while for us to realize that. And the steady state model basically says that there's new stuff coming into existence that's pushing the universe apart. So so this, this is the idea of that movie theater that has stuff coming into it versus the stuff in the theater expanding so you can imagine ooze pushing the chairs apart versus just what right. already exists or new spreading chairs apart. new right. chairs pushing the chairs <laughs> apart yeah uh, right so 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 what did he you know specifically what did he calculate this well, this expansion to be how did he describe this right it, because it's, it's a fairly- just a plot that's the awesome thing is this is a very clean, simple to look at results with a lot of error bars in the initial stuff. It was just a plot of distance versus velocity showing as distance increases, velocity increases. Now it was noisy. It was ugly. We were still, we only had fairly small telescopes by today's standards. We couldn't see very great distances. He ran into problems when he started observing galaxies in the Virgo cluster, because that's a gravitationally bound system. Galaxies in an individual cluster, that cluster isn't expanding. It's the separation between the clusters is expanding. Right. We get that question a lot, right? Which is, you know, is the actual galaxies expanding? Are the solar systems expanding? Are are we expanding? You know, I know you guys have Thanksgiving (laughs) shortly, so (laughs) some might be expanding. I'm not going to answer the question, are we expanding in in general? In the specific case of the cosmological constant, no, it bears no no effect on the human body. It's it's, right. It's about the, it's just the, the, I guess before the concept of dark energy, it's really this... Yeah. Kind of, you know, you have two cars driving away from each other, and those two cars are going to be driving away from each other, and they're going to be moving apart, and they're not going to be the cars themselves aren't going to be actually expanding as well. But um, but you have to be careful. It's it's not the objects that that are moving. It's the space that's expanding. Right. The road and, and is growing. The road is with the growing, cars on top of it. Yeah. And and they have their emergency brakes on. They they yeah. have no velocity. They're stopped. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> But okay, so so then, but I mean, how did he actually describe this? I mean, you say it's a plot over time, but you know, I like I know there's like a, you know, a certain number of 
megaparsecs per well yeah so it right it, so well, we back then we were still trying to figure all of that stuff out i mean so the poor guy in his initial measurements we had problems we didn't exactly know how to calibrate the distance to cepheid variable stars so when your meter stick is is severely broken you end up with the wrong number so he he originally ended up with the universe expanding at roughly 500 kilometers per second per megaparsec and what that says is every million parsecs of space how big is so a par- how, how, how big is a million parsecs of space so there, there's roughly three-ish light years per parsec so so, so three million light years so like yeah. distance kind of here to andromeda ish right yeah. andromeda is like two and a half million light years away from here something yeah <laughs> right it's it but then we're gonna mix our units and add kilometers yeah. per second in there just to throw everything off right so so it's it's not that huge an expansion given the size of our universe but the thing is is it can be measured now the problem is that in order to measure it accurately you need to be able to measure distances accurately and that's where everything falls apart there, there were trying, none of the variable stars are close enough that we can use parallax to measure them. So, so we've had to use all sorts of broken ladders to build our way out to, to the nearby universe. And we did an entire episode on distant scales. Um, yeah. But so, so, he, so 500, I remember, 500 kilometers per second per megaparsec. megaparsec. And so that means wrong. that if, <laughs> was wrong, but that was sort of his initial calculation, right? Yeah. So, so in other words, if a if an object is one megaparsec away, then it's going to be moving at five hundred kilometers per second. And if it's right, and if it's two megaparsecs away, then it's moving away from us at a thousand kilometers the per second. The space between us is expanding at yes, at a rate to make that other object appear <laughs> as if. <laughs> is moving by 1000 kilometers per second and if and if we are three megaparsecs five megaparsecs 10 megaparsecs away okay great so okay so he did this these initial calculations and they you know they were you know they were mind-bending but not super accurate but i right but i know that astronomers have been working on this number like crazy and in fact We we still report on it and we're still you know you know, it's we still write articles, astronomers, refine 66 and 74, <laughs> 66 and 74 yeah. kilometers per second per, per megaparsec. megaparsec, right? Which is sort of almost like a factor of 10 less than he had originally anticipated. And and what's kind of awesome about this Hubble. number is for for decades, there was this horrible cat and dog argument between Sandage and De Vocalores over whether or not it was 50 kilometers per second per megaparsec or 100 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And, and it was just this entire community, people picked sides and they mocked each other and it, it was ugly. And, and I remember as an undergrad, one of, one of my professors, he was not going to pick sides. He simply said, use 100, it's easier move on right because it doesn't really matter because they're big numbers and chances are everybody's wrong so it doesn't matter and and it was only after de vocalors died that that people were finally able to start 
settling down on the answer. And the, the kind of crazy thing is the answer turned out to be roughly 70, midway between 50 and 100. So both dudes were wrong. And, and unfortunately, like so many arguments in astronomy, um, the real work was only done after one of the people who made it a heated, contentious ordeal had passed away. And now we know. The Hubble Key Project has done awesome work trying to refine our distance scale with Cepheids, mm-hmm. trying to figure out the supernovae problem, um, and and we're getting there. And and what's awesome, and we've talked about this in other episodes, is there's so many different lines of evidence that that we're able to to look at um, from using the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe W map to to look at cosmological values, to measuring the supernovae, to to we still use Cepheids to to ground us. Now, now I know, and this has always baffled me, and I tend to sort of avoid it when I when I write articles, which is that astronomers will reference, especially in their research papers, the distance to objects using um, a Z value, right? Yes. A redshift value. They say Z equals five or something like that. We're what bad. on earth does that mean? <laughs> So, right. so well, when, when we started this conversation, we talked about how, how Vesto Slifer had, had measured the Doppler shifting, the red shifting of the galaxies. And the, the mathematical way of, of translating this is if you take the wavelength of the light that you observe and you subtract off the wavelength of where you expected the light to be. And then divide all of that by where you expected the light to be. This gives you a fractional offset, basically. And that value, mathematically, is is called Z. It, Z, pick a Z, term. Uh, for you Americans out there, you could say Z, sure. Redshift is is probably the, the best way to confuse fewer people. Yeah. And, and so this redshift value is just the fractional shifting of the wavelength of the light. It's what you can observe, to get beyond this fractional shifting of the light requires you to make assumptions about space and time. It requires you to make assumptions about how the universe is expanding. So when we work to translate that fractional observed shift in the color, we have to say, okay, so what value of H naught are we going to accept? What um, mathematical value for the density of mass in the universe are we going to accept the omega value and it's only once you make assumptions about those values that you can translate that that redshift into a distance now the the easy way to think of it is anything greater than one is really far away um what's what's kind of amusing to me is when when i started grad school I, I observed the high redshift universe. I looked at things at a redshift of 1.2, 1.3. And, and a galaxy at a redshift of 1 has a, a look-back time of roughly 7.5 uh, to 8 billion years, wow. depending on how you look at it. So, so you're looking back to, to more than half the age of our universe. Right. I mean, compare that, like, as I mentioned, right, Andromeda at two and a half million light years away, you're only looking yeah. back two and a half million years ago, you know, other objects in, in our supercluster are in the, you know, 10 to 50 million years yeah. old. So you're seeing galaxies that, that are 
six billion, eight billion light years away, and yeah. that's just that's considered a a low redshift. Now, well, it, it so Z of one is now considered a moderate to low redshift. It all depends on who you're talking to. Right, uh, supernovae people, it, it's they're starting to push out. Further than that, but the majority of what we see is in that Z equals one. But it, it's kind of crazy the way we can never get all the way back to the beginning. So the the high redshift things that we look at, they're, they're at a redshift of order of four. Some of the highest things that we've looked at are estimated to have redshifts of six. And this is where we start looking at light that came from more than 12 billion years ago. Yeah, I mean, and galaxies are being turned up now using, uh, like, gravity uh, lensing yeah. that are only 500 million years after the Big right. Bang. And, and so greater than four means that you're looking at the first one to two billion years of our universe. And um, it, it's been amazing to me to, to see how just our definition of high redshift observing has, has changed from Z greater than one is high redshift to Z greater than four is, is high redshift and one is nearby. As our technology has increased, as we've pushed out further, it's, it's like with race cars. The definition of, of a high-speed race car has changed since the 1920s. Well, now our definition of observing the high high redshift universe has changed as well. And there's some calculators out there. I know Wolfram Alpha yeah, will right. usually convert that kind of thing. So you can put in, you know, the Z Z no, the, uh, the ratio best, and the the you'll best get a, one out there is Ned Wright's. He he's Ned at Wright's? UCLA. Okay. Um, just type in cosmological calculator. It will take you to his JavaScript page. It has perfectly reasonable default values. I know lots of scientists who, who I remember the first time I had to calculate this stuff. I, I sat there and I wanted to, to cry after they discovered <laughs> what we're talking about in our next episode, which is the yeah. cosmological constant. Um, and, and Ned Wright just programmed all of it. So no grad student ever needs to cry over doing this again. Right. You do it once and then you use his calculator. Yes, yes. You prove you can do it and then you move on with life. It's like long division. So as I mentioned, you know, we're still uh, reporting on stories. I mean, and we yeah. did one like must have been like six months ago about astronomers, you know, narrow in, decide, calculate the most accurate yeah. uh, measurement for the expansion of the universe ever. And then as you know, that number you just you just quoted. So yeah. You know, how big are the error bars now? How much more do they have to go to really get to the bottom of this? It it depends on on which way that you look. So some of the some of them they have fifteen percent error. Some of them have five percent error. But what's awesome is all of these over, overlapping error bars are in fact overlapping. So when you put all the pieces together, it looks like we're probably good to plus or minus three kilometers per second per megaparsec, which is kind of awesome That's pretty amazing hubble yeah. would really appreciate that uh precision yes since he was probably off by a factor of 10 but cool <laughs> all right cool and so as you mentioned uh next up we're going to talk about the cosmological constant which yes. is a einstein's biggest blunder way to go einstein blunder and discovery blunder and discovery well thank you very much pamela <laughs> okay i'll talk, we'll talk to, you to you next week bye bye bye
This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, with generous support from Universe Today.